Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Happy early 4th to you. Hopefully, you get to blow up as much stuff as your heart's desires for the next couple days here. I don't tend to, to buy a whole lot of fireworks. I don't know why. I've just not been a pyro person in my life. So maybe you are, and that's okay. Today, we're going to be in Romans 7 and, and some of 8. We're going to continue our movement through Romans, trying to think rightly about God. Last week, we kind of brought up this idea that like dead people don't sin, that Christians who, by grace, through faith, who have called upon the name of Christ, that they have died to sin, that they're hidden in Christ, and they're raised with him in the newness of life. And God's grace is reflected back to the Father through what we call gratitude, that we have gratitude for the Father. And that gratitude produces a desire within us to dutifully serve him. Serve the Father because he gives us all the grace that we'll ever need to move forward in this new abundance of life, realizing that without grace, we are absolutely, unequivocally lost. And so the question is, is, how did that go for you this week? How was walking in gratitude? I'm hopeful that it went well for you, but in reality, I know that most of us who had ideas of stirring up great gratitude and walking in it probably fell short of our desire and expectation. And look, that's not shocking. And it's not shocking to me, and it's especially not shocking uh, in the light of what we're going to talk about this week. Gratitude is a desired outcome for us as a Christian, moving us from the, the realm of sin and death into the realm of grace that Christ provides for us abundantly. But it is lacking in some ways, and that's what we want to kind of talk about today. C.S. Lewis, brilliant man, he says this. He says, no man knows how bad they are until they try to do good. So yes, a grateful attitude is a certain outcome that we want in our lives, but we struggle to bring that forth in a body that in some ways is often compelled to obey sin rather than to follow our desire to follow Christ. And so gratitude, we want it, but it's hard to walk in, especially in the way that we view generosity in our culture, the way that we're trained to receive generosity. This this past couple weeks ago, Nikki kind of decided she was going to do a garage sale. She executed on it. The Saturday we were doing it, she, she had to go to class. She's been in class for a while, and she asked me if I would just look over the garage sale for the final day of the sale. And it was a bold move, let's just be honest, to say the least. It was a bold move by her because my mindset is completely different than, well, not completely different, but it's different, okay? I am like, how much stuff can I get rid of in the least amount of possible time that I can take? And so it is, make me an offer. Like a dollar, yes, I will give that to you for a dollar. And would you take this with you? Like I'm just stacking them deep, selling them cheap. It's garage selling in reverse. So how much stuff would you take from me for 20 bucks? That's what I'm asking people. And so do you think at any point, and this is true, I did this. I bundled this together. At any point, this guy that I gave a chair, a antique trunk, and a nightstand, all for 40 bucks. Incredible deal. Selling them cheap. Do you think that that person went like this? Oh, my goodness. Like, this is unbelievable. You're giving me all this stuff for $40. This is crazy. Guys, this guy is so generous. Thank you. Thank you so much. No, that never happened, okay? And quite honestly, I probably would be uh, a little weirded out, you know, if that happened. But our attitudes towards generosity most of the time throw us into two different camps. One of them is like my dad, okay? 
My dad loves garage selling shopping. Maybe there are people in that room, this room, that love this. Okay? Oh, yeah. My dad has like 20 riding lawnmowers and 15 push lawnmowers. I don't know why. In case maybe the grass apocalypse happens someday and like he's, see, I told you. We needed all these things. And so my dad will go to garage sales, and then inevitably I'll come into his house, and there's always something new there, and I'll walk in, greet everybody, and then this question happens. Hey, do you notice a lawnmower out there? Yeah, of course I did, Dad. It's nice adding to your collection. That's 21 now. And then this question always follows. He loves this question. And here's the thing. I kind of do too. I think it's part of my dad in me. He says this. How much do you think it cost? Like he just like... (laughs) Just wants to know, like, let's play this guessing game here. And, like, I know that I can, like, defeat that by just going, I don't know, what would you pay, a couple dollars for that? And he's like, oh, man, that's worth more than that. But he, he asked this, how much do you think it cost? And then it's just like he beams with pride, and I'll go, I don't know, Dad, what? And it's just like he kind of whispers it, but he walks into it, and he's like, $20. And then he's like, drops the mic moment, and, like, and like we're all expected to go, like, oh, my gosh, Dad, you for, for $20, I'm expecting a football to be caught. He spikes it, streamers pop out in the background. He's just so excited that he got a deal. And this, for us, often takes on uh, what we do when generosity is given to us. We just like to believe that we have secured, we somehow secured the deal of a lifetime, that we have this special ability to make people more generous than they already are. And so the other camp, of people and how we treat generosity is this camp that says, well, it's about time they did it. Like if your bosses this week just stopped whatever they were doing and treated you to a gourmet lunch with dessert and then said, hey, rest of the day, off, paid for, enjoy it. There would be people in that camp that would just go, it's about time. I mean, as much work as I put in here, it's about time he was generous. And so that is our other camp. And so gratitude, we see, is, is, yes, a desired attitude to walk in, but that outcome is seemingly unachievable, seemingly difficult to walk in in today, despite even the most generous gifts that we get on this earth. And it's lacking, and it's difficult because it's missing one thing. And that one thing is life in the Spirit of God, living in the Holy Spirit. So just continuing in our theme from last week and building gratitude to the Father as we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to the newness in Christ, we know that that attitude isn't sustainable if we are not walking with the Spirit. So today we kind of just want to break down why it is that our best efforts, why our best efforts to honor God continue to prosper in our thoughts, in our theories, but fail in practice. And then how the Holy Spirit changes the believer's life and aids them to walk in freedom. So we're going to do that by picking up Romans 7 today, starting in verse 7. So we'll read that together. It says this, What then shall we say that the law is sin? Familiar start Paul asking a question rhetorically here in Romans. And a familiar answer, he says, By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came in, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me, to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, 
and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So Paul says that this law, the standard of righteous living that God has given us to make a way for us, that law, that law that concludes, includes the law of Moses, like the Ten Commandments, the, the moral laws, the ritual laws, the guidance that we see in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, and Leviticus, that law, he is saying it had the opposite effect on his heart, that in fact, he was finding himself desiring things that he didn't know he needed. And so he's comparing in some ways, abstractly, that the, the, the law is like an MRI, that it reveals sin, that it shows us our sin. It doesn't cause it, and it can't change it. It's, it's good, and it's holy. It doesn't cause us to sin. It reveals it. And Paul says that in this revealing of my sin, I found myself wanting and desiring and coveting after things that I did not know that I wanted. And so we kind of know this kind of same feeling in our life, especially if you have kids. Like my little girl, love her. Two years old, loves the color. We have put a rule in place that says you can only color on paper. Only paper. And we'll say, Camille, what do we color on? In her best toddler voice, only, only color, only paper. How do you think that's working out for us? Not very good. As, it feels like as soon as we put this rule and kind of enforce it, it, it felt like she just realized at that point she needed the color on the table. It's crazy. And so we, this is sort of our makeup, that the moment we suggest that we should do something or shouldn't do something, I should say, we find ourselves kind of thinking about doing that thing. And because of, it's because of this. There is a rebellious spirit, a sinful nature that arises up within us that we know in our minds the right thing, but sometimes we desire to do something completely different. And just like in a moment of confession with you guys, and maybe I'll just be the weird guy in the room, and I'm usually okay with that because that's just most of the reality. Do you ever have these thoughts that just come into your head where you just go, where in the world did that come from? Like, for, like I have followed a police officer in walking, and this question comes in my brain. I wonder what he would do if he just grabbed his gun right now. Like, where did that come from? Like, that's stupid. Like, he's going to stun me, or I'm going to get shot. Or like several years ago, I was on a cruise. I don't know if you've been on a cruise, but I go over to the side of the boat, and all of a sudden, this thing pops in my head. You think you'd live if he jumped? What? <laughs> this is crazy. Am I the only one that struggles with this? Is it just me? Like, do I need help? Don't answer that, okay? Don't, just don't answer the I know that I need help. And so... There is what Paul is saying, that, that, that through the law, sin crept in and made him covet things that he didn't know that he wanted. And then he had this realization, and I think it's a very, a very powerful realization, an important realization for us, that he realized that it wasn't his actions that the law came to regulate, that the law had come to regulate his heart. It came to change his heart, and he was destroyed by that. I mean, Paul is the... <laughs> There is nobody that could look or act more holy than Paul. There's nobody through actions that could be holier than Paul. I mean, in Philippians 3, look at this list of what Paul says he was. 3, 4 through 7, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
Or whatever I gain, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of cross, or Christ. So Paul realizes that it is not his action that God wants. He wants his heart's his heart, and that is what needed to be regulated. And, this, and that's why he says this phrase, that I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came in, sin came alive, and I died. And so this is what this says. It says that law can reveal and it can attempt to control, but it cannot change a person's heart. Law gives us no power to obey. It cannot change the human heart. It just can't. And in this battle of Paul kind of working this out, he just gives this broken confession and speaks against this battle, this war that wages inside of him. And this is probably the most well-known group of passages in Romans 7. And let's read them together, starting in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So no longer it is I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil, the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And Paul pens this very compelling introspective narrative and says that the very things that he doesn't want to do, he finds himself doing, that he cannot seem to will himself to do what he wants to do, and he cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, this passage has some debate around it. There is some debate whether this is Paul thinking back and, and referring to himself back before he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, that he's referring back to himself as a Jewish person, not before he became a Christian. And then the, the other side of it is that this is very much Paul speaking in a present tense. Whatever side of that argument you're on, even if you knew there was an argument, um, whatever you're at in that, what this isn't is it's not a license to sin. This isn't a license to sin because I have seen this passage used by many people. They, they take this verse out and they say, well, see, Paul can't do it. He can't do it. And he's the, he's the best Christian I can think of. And he says that he can't stop sinning. Why should I? Look, the nature of this text that Paul writes is not to defer responsibility and sin. It is to say, hey, brother, hey, sister, know that there is a battle that wages on inside of you between the spirit of God, the, the desire to do things well, and the, the body of flesh, a body of sin. That this is not 
to be the normative Christian life, that we would just continue to give in to sin and struggle. Because honestly, who gets the victory in that? God doesn't get the victory. I certainly don't get the victory. And so Paul asks a compelling question when he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer is, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Wretched man that I am, but thanks be to God who has come to set me free from the master of sin and bring us into the newness of life. Paul knows that the answer to the question of this, this thought of this war waging inside of us is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. Can we ourselves say that? Because we all are seemingly looking for an answer to fit, fix this problem that we could get rid of it because we're all familiar with the understanding of falling short of our expectations and our desire for self. We all know the feeling of falling short constantly, and we will spare no cost to fix it. But ultimately, our human response sends us into two very flawed camps when it comes to responding to our brokenness. One being that if I just did this, that we believe that if I just regulated this, that if there was just some rule in place, then I could break out of this, I could get over this. But Paul has already said this, like, dude, like, what law, like, what rule, what standard is going to fix your busted heart, man? Because, look, we can control our actions on the outside, but what is unseen, what is in the heart, that's a whole different story. What are you going to put in place that's going to deal with your busted and broken heart? And we see this all the time in culture. Like, we love to regulate things. We love to put laws in places. And that's not political. I'm, I will be the least political person that you've ever met. But we have this flawed belief that if someone would just say that was wrong, that we'd regulate it, we'd put a law in it, it would fix it. Now, good laws control things. Good laws curb things. But they don't fix our hearts. They don't fix our hearts, which leads us into this other flawed camp of human response towards our brokenness that just seems so silly. That the camp that believes that the thing that's going to pull me out of this, the thing that will fix all of that is myself. That I can fix this. I've said this a thousand times, I feel like, up here. You can't fix you. That there's no better version of self that's going to be able to deal with this broken heart. So we, are we to say that we have better discipline, better knowledge, better understanding of what is right and wrong than the Apostle Paul? Do we really believe that the person that has lied to us the most, hurt us the most, deceived us the most in ourselves is really the person that's going to be able to pull us out of this? It's not. There is one thing that will deliver us from the life of sin and death into a life of abundance and peace. And if that one thing isn't the person of Jesus Christ, then we're looking in the wrong spot. We're looking in the wrong spot. Paul, in the midst of his bondage and his brokenness, cries out to the Father, wretched man that I am, and so should we. And we too should cry out, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, because we have a lot to be thankful about. And what we're to be thankful about is what Paul talks about here in chapter 8. So let's pick that up together here. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And so there are three important questions that we need to answer coming out of this passage. One, how do we know that we have the Spirit? Two, what does a life led by the Spirit look like? And three, how does one go about being led by the Spirit of God. So let's just jump back into Scripture here. Well, John 16, Jesus leaves us with some profound words about the age when the Spirit's going to come, and he kind of tells us some characteristics about the Holy Spirit. In John 16, verse 13, Jesus says, what the Spirit, when the Spirit of truth, truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So this is a simple question. Do you know Jesus? Has the Spirit led you to Jesus? Has he led you to Jesus? Like, do you know him? Do you know his riches of mercy and grace and love for you? Do you know him? Not know about him, but do you know him? Have you encountered him? In John 16, it also says in in verse 14, it says, he will glorify me, but he will glorify me. Has the Spirit of God put within you a desire to obey God? Has the Spirit put in you a desire to obey Christ? Does your life reflect a reverence to obey the Father? Is there a desire to do what God wants you to do, to live the way he wants you to do? Not live perfectly with imperfection, but the desire is there. Is there a battle between this flesh and your love for God? And the third thing that Jesus talks about when he talks about the Spirit coming is that in verse 8, that he will convict the world concerning sin. So are you being convicted of your sin, your lack of love? Is there a process that you are becoming more and more aware of your brokenness? To know your shortcomings before the Lord and to grieve that and to to make it right. Is that in you? And if we can say that we have these three things, then we have the Spirit. He lives within us. And so what does it mean and what does it look like to live a life led by the Spirit? What does that look like? I'm just going to highlight four outcomes that we see in Scripture of people who walk in a closeness with the Father. So to live by the Spirit means that he leads me into repentance, that he leads me into repentance. If the Holy Spirit resides and dwells with those who by grace through faith have put their trust in Christ, then that Spirit is there as a guide, as an advocate, as a helper. And somebody who needs guided and helped cannot think themselves perfect. So our attitude should be one of repentance, 
that we know that we fall short of doing what we should be doing, but we trust that God has given us all the grace and all the forgiveness that we will ever need to move with him in in the newness of life. So we should humble ourselves and submit ourselves to his way and his thought because we know this. They're better than ours. His thoughts and his ways are better than ours. Where has ours led us? And in being in repentance leads us into another outcome of life in the Spirit. So live life in the Spirit means that he leads me to thinking less of self and more of God. How can we correlate somebody with a gigantic ego and a lover of God? It's impossible. If we have gigantic egos of love of self more than anybody else, that we trust our opinion, we trust our way, and that I'm good in this stuff, I'm right in this, how is it possible that we can serve a God who says, I'm here to complete you, that you are broken, and I came to make a way for you to be in a right relationship relationship with God? How can we serve that? It's impossible. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, if you meet a Christian who wants just to tell you about all of their exploits, how many people that they've spread the gospel to, how many presentations they've done, all the things that they've done in the life to show you how high and mighty they are, I wouldn't trust that guy or that girl. I wouldn't trust them. I don't know if Christ is in that guy or girl because Scripture tells us and shows us constantly that the closer you get to God, the less opinion of yourself that you have. Paul says, wretched man that I am. This is Paul, the writer of the, almost the entirety of the New Testament. Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am lost, a man of unclean lips. John, the disciple, writes in Revelation that when I saw him, I fell on the floor dead. The more spiritual, the closer that we walk with Christ, the less of an opinion that we will have about ourselves. Living a life by the Spirit means that he leads us into truth. He leads us in all truth, which means the Spirit will never contradict the Word of God. It will never contradict truth. For those who are led by the Spirit, we have an ability to walk in unity with the Word and His truth. Not lived out perfectly, right? Sanctification, imperfectly. But we walk with Him in wisdom and truth. And to live life in the Spirit means he leads us into love. Jesus himself tells us in John 13, 35, this is what he says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. You will be known by your love. Not by how smart you are, not by how good you are with words, not by your ability to maybe heal somebody or to speak in tongues or, or whatever you want to think. It will be by your love. That will, is what you will be known by. And so the last question that we kind of want to answer is, how am I to go about being led by the Spirit? And Paul answers this question inside of the, the last text we read in Romans 8. It says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For, the mind, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. A life of a person walking in closeness with the Father, close enough with the Spirit, is constantly setting their minds on the Spirit. Throughout Scripture, 
we see pervasively this language that says, set your minds on God, think on these things, be renewed in this thought, take every thought captive, prepare your mind, store up these things, renew your mind. And I would argue that the greatest ability the Spirit has is His ability to change our minds, to change our thoughts. I mean, do you realize how much it takes for us to change our thoughts? It's unbelievable. You probably have people in your life that you've known for 20, 30 years, and you say this about them. That guy's the same person they've been for 30 years. Because they have generally adopted the same thoughts, the same habits they've had in life. We are stubborn people that it takes a lot for us to change our minds. And so when we see the same power, as, as Paul says, that raised Jesus from the dead in the lives of created beings, we see changed people in thought and deeds. That Jesus Christ, by the Spirit and His Spirit, changes our thoughts and our minds, and He has this ability to lead us into new beliefs, new habits, and new ways. And all of this happens because we are led by the Spirit. And because of that, we become sons and daughters of God. Adopted sons and daughters of God. And he delights in his children, loves his children, wants to give to his children. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, at the end of He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Notice what he didn't say that we would be, notice what he didn't say when he said we would be considered sons of God. He didn't say that you would be considered sons of God by the way that you give, by your attendance in your small group or your Sunday school, by how many books that you read, how smart that you are, not by anything that you do. It says, those who are led by the Spirit are sons and gods. Those who are led by the Spirit. And those of us who are led by the Spirit know this, that He is mine and I am His. And out of that knowledge and out of His Spirit, it begins to produce within us Fruit just naturally begins to happen. And we know that fruit, like joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit. Against, no, against these things, there is no law. And it builds gratitude. And we walk in a, a closeness with the Father, knowing that we have received all the grace that we'll ever need to let the Holy Spirit dwell in our lives and permeate and marinate in our souls, in our lives, in our hearts, that he would take us through this sanctification, that we would look more and more like the Father, because we're not trying to follow some external rules. It just bubbles out of our hearts. If we practice joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, will not the law be obeyed because of that? It's a production that lies within us, and it's enabled by the Spirit of God. That we have moved from masters that are, or people that are controlled by the master of sin into being a child of God. That we have been liberated from our bondage, that we are sons and daughters of a king. And so just to kind of package this all together, like, look, we realize, or maybe we should begin to realize, that our expectations that our desires, that our ideas and theories of how we're going to go about living for God is great. 
But we have to understand that there is a war that is waging inside of us between our love for God and desire to follow him and the sinful nature. Wretched man that I am, wretched man or woman that I am, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who gives us all that we could ever need to move from this life of death into the life of abundance and peace. That he gives us a spirit that leads us into repentance. It leads us into thinking less of self and more of God. He leads us into all truth. And he leads us into love. And in that process, he builds up fruit in our life, good fruit in our life, by which we are able to walk in a closeness to the Father and dutiful obedience. It is not a following of an external law. It is a delight of our hearts because it builds out from the Spirit. And so this week, I just want us to have some really good thoughts. I would love to challenge you guys with just having some really good thoughts about, do you have the Spirit? Am I living this kind of lifestyle? Father, will you help me to set my mind on you? Will you help me to set my mind in Christ? Will you renew me? Will you help me to think about these things? Let us pray for that this week. Let us pray that the Spirit helps us to walk in that. And by that prayer, I hope that we all can experience more abundance and more in peace in life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us, that you have given us all that we could ever need to move from this life of death into your life of abundance, of peace and grace and love. Father, will you search our hearts, will you search our souls, and will you move in our lives to help us to come under your spirit, that we would let the spirit dwell in us, that we would seek you, that we would set our minds on you constantly this week, that we would be renewed in thought and trust that your way is better than our way. Your way is better than our way, Father. We love you, Father, and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, who did for us what we could not. Amen.